Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we speak with the founder of Latina Rebels about the power of storytelling, touch base with a leading local chef about American restaurants and Chicago's food scene, and check in with labor organizers who think architects need to organize in the era of Trump. All this plus the Trump Diaries on Lumpen Week in Review for April 7, 2017. This week, What's Up presented a talk with Prisca Dorcas from Latino Rebels about the importance and power of storytelling, writing, and using your voice. What's Up broadcasts live from Studio Y at Yolo Cali every Saturday at noon. You will listen to Prisca Lorcas from Latina Rebels blog, a talk on the importance and power of storytelling, writing, and using your voice. Recorded live on March 15, 2017 at the Port Ministries. As part of Papa View Radio at Richard Curry Academy and Casa Program. <laughs> okay, hi. So I'm going to do a little bit about myself because I talk about storytelling, but all my stories are in first person. And I feel like you need to understand who I am to understand my stories. <laughs> a group of kids are coming in for the radio. <laughs> Okay, so I was just basically telling a story about, like, how I got to college. Uh, So, yeah, I went up to my counselor, and I said, I want to go to AP classes, and he's like, no. So I went home, and I was like, okay, Mom, we're going to go tell this AP teacher to put me in AP class, this counselor to put me in AP classes. She's like, okay. And so we went to the counselor, uh, and she doesn't know any English, so I had to translate. And so I sat in the office, and I was like, my mom said to put me in AP classes. And the counselor said, well... I think if we put you in those classes, you're going to fail. Tell your mom that none of them speak English and they're not going to be able to help you with your homework. And we don't want you to not pass high school because we put you in classes that were above your level. And so I was like, I, I prepared my mom for this, right? I was like, so I turned to my mom and I also knew that I had to get her riled up like passionate so she could put me in these AP classes. So I was like, mommy, he said we're stupid because we're immigrants. No ve el potencial de nuestra familia. Like I was just like, sell it, right? And my mom, I think she likes, like, I don't know. I think it has to do with like in my country, there was an embargo when I was born. So the U.S. cut resources to my country And so, like, there was a lot of starvation and kids were dying everywhere. And so the only people that were allowed to come to our country were, like, these missionaries, these Christian people. And so they came in boats full of food and clothes and toys. And so my parents were like, okay, we're going to do that Christian thing for food. And so they converted. So my mom has this idea of white people, specifically Christians, but white people being, like, saviors. So... um, And it's not any fault of her own. She learned it. And uh, so here we are in front of this white counselor. And the counselor's like, no, you you shouldn't go. And my mom's like, pues, tal vez tiene razón. Maybe he's right. And I was like, mommy, we talked at home about this. I told you what to say. She's like, no, I just don't, I don't want you to fail. And I was like, So I turned to the counselor and I said, my mom said to put me in those AP classes now. And he's like, (laughs) he's like, are you sure? I didn't hear that. I was like, yes. So they put me in these classes and I ended up going to college because of it. (laughs) Because that's the only reason I had any help with the applications. Um, I went to an HSI, so Hispanic Serving Institution. I didn't know that's what heaven would look like, but it is. Because uh, then I went to an, a white serving institution, so like a normal college, like the rest of the colleges in the U.S., right? Uh, and I was like, oh, this is different. But anyways, I went to an HSI. I had 45,000 students. 80-something percent of them are Latinos. And all my professors were Latinos. Um, all, like, you know, the sororities and fraternities, they were all Latinos. I was like, oh, we, have, we can do anything we want. And then I was getting near, like, graduation time. 
and I started, so I got a, I got a degree in dance and literature. So like, you don't get a job in those really. So I started hearing people talk about going to grad school and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I, I was sitting in the, at La Mesa with my parents. We were having dinner because I still lived at home for college. And I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. And they're like, <laughs> no, you're not. My mom's like, de aquí no te vas hasta que te cases. And I was like, I got to get married then. So I got married. I proposed to somebody I was dating, and we were married. Like in four months after I proposed to him. <laughs> And then I applied to, okay, so then I was like, okay, now I'm married. I'm going to Google how to get into grad school. And I was like, take the GRE. And I was like, okay. And I took the GRE, and I was like, Google how to get into grad school without that stupid exam. <laughs> and there was a list of schools. And, like, I'm a first gen, so, like, I see schools, and I'm like, I don't recognize any of them. Like, maybe if you put Harvard in front of me, I'd be like, yeah, duh, I know that. But it was like Vanderbilt was one of the schools. And I was like, whatever. I, I heard about that in Gossip Girl. <laughs> and I, like, applications are a lot of money. And putting in the paperwork to get um, your vouchers for it is not something you understand as a first gen. So I went in, I was like, I'm going to apply to this one school. And that's it. <laughs> so I applied to it and I got in. And then I moved to Nashville and I was like, oh, white people live in the U.S. And <laughs> it was very jarring, and I got very angry. I had never experienced racism because Latinos, we, we, we do a certain kind of violence to each other. There's a lot of colorism in our culturas. We're very anti-black, very anti-indigenous, but it's horizontal. When you're around white people in a white-serving institution, it's very much power structures like you won't get hired at a work placement because of the color of your skin even though the government is paying for you to be there that kind of stuff so I got really angry and I got really woke really fast and um, from that I created Latina Rebels the platform that everybody kind of knows me from so when people tell you like you can't be angry you know love Trump's hate I'm like no I got really angry and I made this thing and it did a lot of really cool things and it still continues to do a lot of really cool things. So stay angry. Uh, so I, as like I said, I never thought I was smart. I, was, I never thought I would get into places. I was just like curiosa. Like I was like, hmm, I hear about college. Sure, why not, right? It wasn't like, duh, I'm going to college or duh, I'm going to get a master's. No, it was like, I have nothing to lose except like a lot of money, but it's just one application, right? Uh, I never thought I was a writer, and now I work full-time as a writer. So I tell people, specifically about writing, I tell people to write. I encourage people, like, it doesn't matter if you don't think you're a writer, write, because we have ancestors who have been telling stories before these colleges told us how to write. Um... Because writing has been gentrified, and they made rules, and you have to write like this. And he here's grammar police telling you how to exist in your story. But, like, guess what? You become a writer, there's people that get paid to edit your work. So you don't have to actually learn all that they teach you in schools, right? Because I'm not a good writer. <laughs> I, there's people that get paid to do the checking of my writing. And I understand, I hate when people go into spaces and they're like, well, if you try really hard, you can do anything you set your mind to. Because I think that there's already obstacles that we, like, yeah, you tell that to a really privileged, wealthy white man. And yeah, he probably can, like, because his parent will call somebody who will call somebody and he'll get to the top really quickly. So when you tell students of color or people of color, like, anything you set your mind to, you could do, that's like a lie. <laughs> It's hard out there, and it's brutal, but telling our stories changes narratives. Um, I'm a big supporter of blogging. I, so I, I started writing for the Huffington Post. Huffington Post doesn't pay its contributing writers, so I wrote for free for like six months. But because of the access of the Huffington Post, 
I got to start writing full time. And the only reason the Huffington Post reached out to me was because I used to write hella long IG captions. <laughs> and Tanisha Ramirez um, is the editor at the Huffington Post Latino Voices. And she messaged me on Facebook. She's like, you're a writer, girl. And I was like, no. I just get passionate on Instagram, right? <laughs> and she's like, no, you're a writer. You should write for us. And it turned into a career, so. So I think I'll end it on that. Um, I want to encourage you all and want to keep encouraging and want you to leave this room thinking, I too can write. And I'm the only one that can tell my story you change the narrative and you can change the world. Trump supporters, Trump himself, have been saying what they think about our communities, but we're the only ones that can actually say what our communities are like, what our experiences are about. So write it all down. Thank you for coming. This week, Buildings on Air spoke with Marianella de April about labor organizing and agency in architecture. Can architects organize the way that teachers and other industries have? Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month from 2 to 4 p.m. We're here live in the studio on this lovely Saturday afternoon in Bridgeport with Marianella. Marianella, I've known for a long time. Uh, well, not that long, actually. Yeah, not that long. Yeah, but uh, through Architecture Lobby activism. And um, Marinella, I'm really happy to have you here to talk about this issue of architectural agency. Um, we talk about it almost all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think uh, you, you bring a unique perspective to it um, because of your background in activism and organizing. Um, but I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Tell us about you, Marinella. Cool. Yeah. Um, I am... Currently in graduate school, I'm a, um, doing history and theory at UC Berkeley, um, but I'm an architect um, and I'm also a teacher and I'm an organizer. Um, I was trained as an organizer in a labor union, um, UAW 2865, um, which is a graduate student workers union um, in California, in the, in the UC system. Um, and I also now do organizing with um, East Bay DSA. Yeah. And you guys are doing great work on single payer. Right. Yeah. And now moving into housing also. So yeah, I'm really interested in architecture, politics, um, teaching, and how all of those things intersect, both academically and historically, but also in practice. For as much as architects talk about process, they leave the labor of pro uh, the labor out of that process. Right. Don't recognize the all of the labor that is included in that process. Right. Um, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, are you suggesting that, um, I don't know how to put this, that like basically regaining the kind of architect's agency in this process is like, uh, is the thing that can like defend architecture and, and, and buildings from like these kinds of, um, you know, co-opting forces? Yeah, I think so. So I'll use like a parallel because I think so I, I mentioned earlier my training or my training as an organizer comes from union from a labor union mm -hmm. and uh, but I'm organizing students student workers who are similarly declassed yeah. um, as architects right they don't conceive of themselves as being part of a working class even though they very much are right um, if they are so typically a graduate student worker works minimum twenty hours a week um, and gets paid. Very, very little. Um, and, um, right, and so they don't conceive of, they conceive of the work that they do, typically if they're in graduate school, as being their research um, and not necessarily their teaching. Their teaching is a sort of like separate thing that right. doesn't belong um, to their conception of themselves in the world as professional academics. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's quite similar um, as as architects. Um but but in, in organizing graduate students, sort of getting them to see that um, if it wasn't for the work that they're doing, they wouldn't even, the work as in like the teaching, the labor of teaching. Yeah. Um, first of all, the university wouldn't run. Right. Um, 
And second of all, they would not be able to do any of the research that they're doing. And in, and in that sense, it becomes very clear. So in in the reason I brought this up in that is that in organizing graduate students, there's a clear line to getting them to see, to conceive of what they do as labor, as work, because... Um, because it's very easy to get them to see how it enables them to do other things. Right. There's the with the, architects. There's not such a clear kind of line. Yeah. There's the old saw on the left about how um, you know the bosses need you more than you need the bosses. Right. That's <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I think that's true in architecture. Right. Yeah. Um, but in architecture, there's still this kind of like aspirational culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes it okay or almost desirable for a lot of people to for example take on paid internships at large very sort of important firms right um and that's and that's where it seems like agency can be reclaimed yeah well and i I yeah exactly i mean i think um yeah the the alternative to the agency not being in the building right is that it's it's like in the conditions of their production right um, which really means like in, in, in very concrete terms, that means like uh, struggling for like working class issues. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I think probably a lot of people are listening to this being like, oh, like I thought architects are like, you know, sort of well paid. Like it's, sure. it's a very strange thing to kind of think about architects being working class. Um, and I, I, there, there is some truth to that. I mean, like at the end of the day, most architects are relatively privileged workers, but but part of that is because of all the hoops you have to jump through. It uh, ends up um, kind of being a, a, a pool of privileged privileged mm-hmm. people at the end, mm-hmm. um, and, and we shouldn't mm-hmm. ing- we shouldn't ignore that fact. But it doesn't it doesn't really change um, the fundamental power dynamics. They're at the, they're they're very similar. I mean I mean um, mm-hmm. even even like there's a big difference between <laughs> being. Um, you know, close to petite bourgeois and being, um, you know, uh, an unrepentant sort of like owner of the means of production. Right, right. Which most architects aren't. No. Even if, and that's um, one of the dangers of of late capitalist culture is that you, the the working conditions make you th- make you think that you have an autonomy over your work uh, mm. or an uh, sort of. Um, make your own work in a way that um, isn't necessarily the case. There's yeah. like an illusion of choice right. that happens. Yeah. Um, like I'm choosing to take this unpaid internship or I'm yeah. choosing to work 60 hours a week because it's going to be better for me in my career. Yeah. Um, One thing we talk about in the Chicago chapter of the architecture lobby a lot is like work being a consensual relationship, mm-hmm. right? And like um, that that's kind of like almost the, the, the ideal situation, but that, like it, it, it never is, even if it sort of sometimes feels like it, because because all of your choices are sort of inscribed by mm-hmm. these larger systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, know. that reminds me of this the the right to work phrasing, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. That like you you make the choice to work as if it's not yeah. a necessary condition for surviving. This week, Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with Joe Farina, chef and managing partner at the Victory Tap Chicago. Joe spoke about food trends, the difference between American Italian and Italian food, and where he thinks Chicago sits among world food destinations. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday in drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. We're welcomed now with chef Joe Farina. Welcome, Joe. Hey, thanks, Jen. There's a lot of competition, though, of course, in Italian food in Chicago. Bring it on. <laughs> but I mean, I, my point, question is, I mean, are there, I mean, Taylor Street obviously has been a long time nexus for Italian food. Where do you see Italian food sitting in the city? Because for a lot of people, Italian food is kind of the Chicago first wave in a sense. You know, you've got a lot of newer restaurants out, beard awards and all that. But Italian food is kind of what the city was initially based on. You know, you, you say that. That's, that's funny you say that. You know, like my, my type of Italian cooking, you're, you're not going to really see in Italy. It's more, I have more like, I'm Chicago Italian. I take, you know, I mean, chicken parm. You go to Italy and ask the guy for chicken parm, he might hit you with a pan in the head, you know what I mean? But, you know, it's all over like New York and in South Florida, I've been to places that, you know, it's just, just good down-home food. And, you know, I just take the stuff that I grew up on and I tweak it and make it better. 
Joe, before we went on the show, Jamie was telling me that that uh, there was recently a report that Chicagoans for the first time this year spent more on restaurants than on groceries. Have you seen that that trend in, in what you've seen in the city? You know what? With our newest project, this Victory Tap at um, in the South Loop, yeah, I, I certainly did. I mean, we were just we thought it would be great, but we're like we're like really like wow, this is this. Just fantastic. Yeah, I could believe that. What are those items that you're seeing on, on menus that you haven't seen in, in, in a long time? J- Jamie mentioned uh, Italian restaurants kind of popping up everywhere. Burrato is not something that we we kind of normally saw in, in fresh variety no, over, no, all over no, Chicago. No, no, no. Burrato is like, you know, kind of reminds me of uh, Brussels sprouts. I mean, every menu you look at now, they have Brussels sprouts on it, including mine. Mm-hmm. Hey, people are eating Brussels sprouts. They like them. So, might as well, you know. I me, I like to roll with the punches. I like to give people what they're looking for. And you know, I got ten requests for Brussels sprouts in a week. So he says, "Well, I'm doing something wrong. I better put Brussels sprouts on." And uh, another one's like Bronzino. Every place has Bronzino now. I, I refuse. I won't do Bronzino. Food trends, there's a lot of money spent by marketers and advertisers and food producers right now sure. trying to identify what the tastes are for the next year. And I think the latest list came out. There was some st- pomegranates were on it. Right. Uh, trying to think what charge was on it. How? I guess the question is, as a restauranter, how much does that impact you and your thinking? Uh, and do you actually – I mean, I've always – kind of wondered in the back of my head whether some of this stuff is completely phony do people actually come to you and say you know i really want that pomegranate molasses thing because it's the the hot new trend this year and you're you're sitting there shaking your head going i've never even heard of this what are you talking about exactly you know i think like part of those advertisements hey it's how much money you got and your marketing campaign like hey you know let's let's go out and hit these trendy uh these these trend lists some uh, marcona almonds lasted for about you know two months i believe i mean it's just it's something that i like keeping it so basic what are the things that you you look at when you enter a space i know that that this process that process of opening up a place really kind of changed my perspective Uh, it's it's one of those things like you almost know too much what do you look for what's the first thing you you think about when you look in a space i want to look at the bar and i want to look at and see if they have black iron I won't even go look at a place really if it's. I really don't like the, the place that you have to build out a hundred percent. It's nice, don't get me wrong, but you know why? Why not just take an existing place that they couldn't make it, and you take you know, you're you're using their you're using a lot of their stuff that they they, they couldn't make possible that will cost you a quarter of what it would cost you if you built it out yourself. What are, what are the places that, that uh, you look at around the country or, or outside of the country um, that, that you think about? Uh, you know, there's this uh, group out of uh, New York, and they're, uh, they're called the Major Food Group. They own this place, Carbone. They own Parm. They own, I'll tell you about. Uh, Teresi, right? Teresi. Teresi. Yeah, Teresi. They own that. Fantastic. They own dirty French. They own they own a they own a, a Jewish deli that's unbelievable. Is that Russ and Daughters? Is that they, they don't own Russ and Daughters, but that's great too. That's great. Yeah. Don't you love Russ and Daughters? I love Russ and Daughters. Yeah, it's wonderful. Theirs is called the Sedels. Oh yeah. Okay. Really, really cool space. They, they they have the second floor. You're going up, and they have the bagel room that you're looking into as you're going up. And the guy's making all the bagels with the with the pots, water, and all that stuff. Really, really cool, and um, I love these guys. I mean, they—they they have, they're just—they're—they're they're the stuff. They're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're great, man. They—they they took over the Four Seasons restaurant in New York. I mean, everybody in the country wanted that. From Thomas Keller to these guys, got it. You know, they—they—they they, they had uh, George Clooney called. Well, his his people called and. They called Carbone and, uh, hey, we got George Clooney uh, coming in uh, in about 45 minutes to an hour with his wife. Well, we really don't have the room, you know, sorry. Try us, you know, another time. (laughs) Then George Clooney called them and they said, uh, hey, this is George Clooney. Hey, I'm going to come in with my wife in about 45 minutes. He goes, hey, man, I just told your your guy to just call me that. We don't have room for you or your wife or, you know. 
Sorry, try us another day. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. I think, I, you know, like I love the I love the food in New York. I mean, do you? Do you? Don't you? I mean, don't you love it? Oh yeah, absolutely. What's there not to like? I mean, yeah. You know, I, I made a statement. It's pretty bold. I said once, a couple times. You know, I like the food better in New York than I do in Italy. <laughs> well, I mean, there's certainly more variety, and it's my kind of Italian cooking. I yeah. mean, I went to Italy, and they don't cook with a lot of salt. They don't cook. No. You know, I think it's you know they're they're not saying it's bad food, so don't I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it, my preference is I like American Italian food. New York is an interesting thing to talk about because New York for a long time was considered ground zero for food in America. L.A. is starting to develop a reputation now as ground zero. Yeah, yeah. I lived in L.A. for a number of years. I would say that uh, I was lucky to be there when I was because before that it was nothing but Tom's Hamburgers and, uh, and diners, which I happen to like, but it's not exactly yeah, it groundbreaking. Is. Chicago, however, and I'm not saying this just because I, I love Chicago and I've been here a long time. I've always felt that Chicago has had a food scene that is up with any other city in the world. And the one thing that I've always felt that has made Chicago such a great place – is that you can't fake it here. If your restaurant isn't good, you're probably not going to stay open. You have to give good value for money and you have to prepare good quality food. You have to prepare it, you know, there's different price points, obviously, like there is in any other business. But I'm interested from a professional point of view. We're talking about New York. Obviously, L.A. has got a lot of stuff going on from the French Laundry to Animal to um, Mozza. Mozza is great, actually. Mozza. The woman who ran Moza was the Nancy wife Silverton. of yeah was the wife of a guy that I worked with at Fox Sports. Oh, nice! For a number of years, so we we had takeout from Moza quite frequently, and really? it, was a, cool. it was a wonderful perk down at uh, at Fox yeah, Sports. Yeah, I had it one time. Yeah, it's I great. The food, yeah, her pizzas it. are amazing. Yeah, really good. Oh, yeah, really good. No, no, good stuff. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that's going on there. Um, uh, Jelena in in Venice uh, obviously is is kicking butt with the stuff they're doing. Very interesting, fresh twists on stuff. Chicago has been well represented, obviously, in the Beard Awards. We've got a lot of high-power restaurants. We've been very lucky in Bridgeport as well to have some good new restaurants open up. Duck Inn, Kimsky's, you know, we hope Antique Taco is doing well. What's your take, basically, on where Chicago food sits in relation to everybody else? It's right up there with me. I just think there's more of it in New York. I think ours is just as good, if not better. There's just more of it in New York. L.A., I, I think we're way above them. San Fran's got a cool food scene, correct? They do, yeah. San Fran's got a great food scene. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I like, I, I think Chicago's way up there, way up there. The Trump Diaries, Day 70, March 31st. Trump hastily left a signing ceremony without adding his signature to two trade orders as a reporter shouted a question about testimony in the Russian inquiry by Michael Flynn, Trump's former disgraced national security advisor. The White House said Trump signed the directives later in the day. And also later in the day, the White House revived Trump's unproven wiretapping allegations against the Obama administration, insisting that there is new evidence that it conducted, quote, politically motivated surveillance of Trump's presidential campaign. Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, asserted to reporters during his news briefing that members of Obama's administration had done, quote, very, very bad things, just as Trump alleged without proof on March 4th. Said Mr. Spicer, quote, the question is why? Who else did it? Was it ordered? By whom? But I think more and more the substance that continues to come out on the record by individuals continues to point to exactly what the president was talking about that day. Spicer appeared to be basing his assertions on reports from a right-wing news outlet that took out of context a month-old interview with a former Obama administration official. And Trump ended the American Bar Association's semi-official role in evaluating candidates for the federal bench. The ABA had provided pre-nomination evaluations of potential judicial candidates to every administration since that of Dwight D. Eisenhower, with the sole exception of George W. Bush. The Bar Association recently gave its highest rating to Judge Neil Gorsuch, Trump's Supreme Court nominee. But some studies have concluded that the Bar Association, a private trade group that often takes liberal positions, tends to favor the nominees of Democratic presidents. 
and two men who have reported extensively on jihadists in the Middle East sued Trump and members of the administration today, alleging they are on a kill list meant for terrorists. The two men have worked in war zones and have had contact with many members of al-Qaeda and other extremist groups, but Bilal Abdul Karim and Ahmad Mufad Zaidan deny they are members of any of those groups. Former American counterterrorism officials expressed skepticism that the men's activities would get them marked for death by a program meant to eliminate terrorists actively plotting violence against America. But since the kill list is secret, no one knows. Day 71, April 1st. We woke up today to discover Trump's presidency was not an elaborate joke. And the personal wealth of Stephen K. Bannon was revealed. Bannon apparently has assets worth $11.8 million to $53.8 million, according to a mandatory public filing. A large chunk of his income comes from right-leaning political news, film, and consulting companies, but Bannon made his initial wealth from brokering the sale of Seinfeld reruns, which allowed him to collect a portion of the royalties. Bannon also disclosed more than $500,000 in income from entities linked to the hedge fund manager Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca Mercer, including $191,000 from the right-leaning media outlet Breitbart News. He also collected $127,000 from a data firm called Cambridge Analytica and more from $60,000 from the Government Accountability Institute. And Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner will remain the beneficiaries of a sprawling real estate and investment business worth as much as $740 million. Ms. Trump will also maintain a stake in the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. That hotel, just down the street from the White House, has drawn protests from ethics experts who worry that foreign governments or special interests could stay there in order to curry favor with the administration. Day 72, April 2nd. New York Times reported in a front-page expose on Sunday that Fox News star Bill O'Reilly and the Fox Network have paid out $13 million to five women to settle a series of harassment allegations. Fox has been beset by allegations of sexual harassment. Co-founder and former chairman Roger Ailes was removed last year for similar offenses. O'Reilly says the claims are without merit. Ailes was involved in the Trump transition, and as part of his campaign, Fox News has been a reliable source of pro-Trump news in the modern era. Day 73, April 3rd. The Washington Post reports that the United Arab Emirates arranged a secret meeting in January between Blackwater founder Eric Prince and a Russian close to President Vladimir Putin as part of an apparent effort to establish a back-channel line of communication between Moscow and Trump. The meeting took place in the Seychelles, and that meeting is now the focus of an FBI investigation. Prince had no formal role with the Trump campaign or transition team, but presented himself as an unofficial envoy for Trump. Prince's sister, Betsy DeVos, is the education secretary. Prince also contributed $250,000 to Trump's election campaign. And the hits keep coming from Michael Flynn, that disgraced national security advisor. He failed to list payments from Russian-linked entities on required financial disclosure forms. The payments were released by congressional investigators and included a $45,000 speaking fee from RT, known as Russia Today. Flynn earned nearly $1.5 million for his lobbying efforts on behalf of Turkey and for that Russian speech. Congressional investigators said Flynn is likely to have to return that money. And a bomb blast erupted on a subway train in the Russian city of St. Petersburg, killing 11 people and injuring at least 50 more. A second bomb was later found and diffused on another train, raising the specter of a coordinated terror attack. At the time of the attack, Vladimir Putin was a few miles away in the same city. St. Petersburg is his hometown. He was there on official business. So far, no one has claimed responsibility. And the Senate Judiciary Committee approved Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch in a party-line vote. He will now be sent to the full Senate for confirmation, where Democrats have lined up the votes to filibuster that nomination. It is expected that Mitch McConnell will use the so-called nuclear option to confirm Gorsuch with a simple majority. And Fox News is reporting tonight that Susan Rice, the former national security advisor under then-President Obama, requested to unmask the names of Trump transition officials caught up in surveillance. Those unmasked names were then sent to all those at the National Security Council. Trump seized on the report in an early morning tweet storm as proved he had been wiretapped. This is false. In fact, what the report shows is that associates of a presidential candidate communicated with representatives of a foreign power, and the National Security Advisor sought to find out who these people were. And President Abdel Fattah of El Sisi of Egypt was welcomed by Trump for the first time, giving a veneer of respectability to a brutal autocrat. Trump said, quote, we agree on so many things. I just want to let everybody know in case there was any doubt, we are very much behind President El Sisi. He's done a fantastic job in a very difficult situation. In fact, El Sisi has gunned down hundreds of protesters in the streets of Cairo, has filled prisons with his opponents, and has strangled the free press. He was not allowed to attend the Obama White House. 
and Trump has donated his salary for the first quarter of the year to the National Park Service. That service faces major cuts in the president's first budget proposal. Sean Spicer, the president's press secretary, presented a check signed by Mr. Trump for $70,333.32 to Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. He oversees the Park Service. Mr. Zinke said, quote, I'm thrilled. Day 74, April 4th. Attorney General Jeff Sessions ordered a sweeping review of federal consent decrees with dozens of law enforcement agencies and went to court to seek a 90-day delay in the consent decree that Baltimore has agreed to. Sessions' memo said in part, quote, the individual misdeeds of bad actors should not impugn the work police officers perform, quote, in keeping American communities safe. Chicago agreed to a consent decree on the final day of the Obama administration after a view found years of racist policing tactics. Baltimore, both the city and the police, strongly support the decree and cast aspersions on Sessions for bringing it. Sessions believe that consent decrees demonize police and keep police from actually doing their jobs. And a toxic gas attack delivered in a government airstrike killed dozens of people in northern Syria, including women and children. The strike was on the rebel-held province of Idlib and appeared to be a new nerve agent. Gas attacks are illegal under the Prohibition Convention, which Syria has signed, but the Syrian government has routinely used chlorine gas on civilian populations. The White House blamed the Syrian government for today's attack, which it called reprehensible and an act that cannot be ignored by the civilized world. Spicer went on telling reporters, quote, these heinous actions by the Bashar al-Assad regime are a consequence of the last administration's weakness and irresolution. Earlier in the week, Trump had said regime change in Syria was no longer a priority. And Fox News was facing a major advertising revolt Tuesday afternoon as companies wary of the sexual harassment accusations against Bill O'Reilly pulled their ads from his primetime cable news show. A total of eight marketers have suspended sponsorships in the last 24 hours, including Mercedes-Benz, Hyundai, Allstate, Constant Contact, BMW, and GlaxoSmithKline. Also on Tuesday, the National Organization for Women called for Mr. O'Reilly to be fired and said an independent investigation should be conducted in the culture at Fox News. O'Reilly, 67, is the network's most visible star, leading a primetime programming slate that draws record ratings. Day 75, April 5th. BuzzFeed reported that Carter Page, who was briefly a foreign policy advisor to Trump, was involved in a federal espionage case several years ago. Page communicated with a Russian intelligence agent under surveillance by the FBI. In a statement, Page confirmed his role in the 2015 Justice Department spy case. Page said he assisted U.S. prosecutors in their case against Evgeny Buryakov, an undercover Kremlin agent posing as a bank executive in New York. Buryakov was convicted of espionage and released from federal prison last week. Just a few months shy of completing a 30-month sentence, Buryakov agreed to be immediately deported back to Russia and Republicans are working behind the scenes to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Republican leaders have sought to temper their expectations. The White House was expected to detail a new proposal later on in the day. House Speaker Paul Ryan said that Republicans are in a, quote, preliminary phase of trying to rework the bill. He did not commit to a timeline for resolving the differences that sank the measure. Vice President Pence, however, told a gathering of CEOs at the White House that he and Trump remain confident that they'll repeal and replace the ACA. Several insurers are pulling out of the individual markets due to the uncertainty over the ACA. Iowa has been left without a major Blue Cross carrier due to the confusion behind the scenes. And Stephen Bannon was suddenly removed from the National Security Council. A senior White House official said the change is not an emotion. Another told Bloomberg that Bannon had been placed on the council to monitor Michael Flynn. The disgraced advisory was sacked in February over lying about his Russian contacts. Trump also downgraded the role of his Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert in a major shakeup. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster was given responsibility for setting the agenda for meetings of the NSC or the Homeland Security Council under the move. And the National Intelligence Director, Dan Coats, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford, are again regular attendees of the NSC's Principals Committee. And Politico reported that Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch plagiarized material from other authors and scholars in an academic article and subsequent book. Several passages in The Future of Assisted Suicide in Euthanasia read nearly verbatim to a 1984 article in the Indiana Law Journal. Politico cited several other instances in that book and in an academic article published in 2000, where Gorsuch borrowed the ideas, quotes, and structures of scholarly and legal works without citing them. Several scholars said Gorsuch's borrowing would have resulted in academic censure. The White House tried to play down the new controversy. And Trump said the attack in Syria changed his view of the brutal civil war in that country, though he declined to say how the United States would respond. Trump also said the attack, quote, crosses many lines. Beyond a red line, many, many lines. 
He added that the death of innocent children, innocent babies, little babies, has made him reassess the situation in Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad. Trump also told the New York Times today that former National Security Advisor Susan Rice may have committed a crime by seeking the identities of Trump associates who were mentioned on intercepted communications without proof. Trump claimed, I think it's going to be the biggest story, Trump said, while offering no evidence for his allegations. It's such an important story for our country and the world. It is one of the big stories of our time, Trump claimed. The Rice story, in fact, has been whipped up by right-wing news outlets. Nonpartisan observers have said she committed no improprieties and that the White House is trying to distract from their Russian woes. Rice said directly, quote, the allegation is that somehow the Obama administration utilized intelligence for political purposes. That's absolutely false. And Trump's Gallup poll rating continued to fall. Trump's approval rating is now just 34%, a historic low for a president, and continuing a downward spiral that has affected the new president and his young regime. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke with Edward Cabral, a sculptor, artist, and the executive chef at the new Sanctuary Cafe. Cabral talked about how easy it is to get on the Food Network, how artists are attracted to baking, and creating a safe space in Hyde Park. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center on WLPN LP Chicago. This is 105.5 FM Radio, Lumpin Radio. Uh, this is... Once again, Bad at Sports Center. My name is Brian Andrews, and I'm here with Dana Bassett, Ryan Peter Miller, and, and Duncan McKenzie. And Duncan McKenzie. It's a uh, beautiful, dreary, drippy spring day in lovely Bridgeport, Chicago. Uh, and we are joined by Edward Cabral. Hello. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Edward, you are, you know, multi talented artist and um, baker, executive chef. Restaurant, cafe, business yep. owner, all the things, uh, yeah. extraordinaire, and uh, so you just opened a new cafe space this week. Yeah, uh, nonprofit bakery and and cafe. We're sort of calling it. So it's like a art and social justice space. We also serve like lunch and. Okay, so this is called Sanctuary Cafe. Yes, it's in uh, the University Church of Chicago, which is at Fifty Seventh and University down in Hyde Park. Okay. Um, we're sort of in the old kitchen space. We've taken over their whole area and turned it into. Our, our cafe. This cafe is doing a whole lot of things. Let's mm-hmm. slow down and unpack it. That's fair. What are you yeah. doing? Well, yeah. and maybe it would be helpful maybe if you told us a little bit about the university church too, because okay. that's like a for sure kind of interesting context. Co- yeah, yeah for context sure. for making this cafe. And definitely, definitely. Why you would well, have so the, the University Church of Chicago was founded in like 1898, I think. It's about to do its 125th, and it was. Its founder said they wanted to make religion as well-researched as science, as relevant as modern art, you know, so it's never been dogmatic. It's always been sort of like an all-inclusive, welcoming space. It was the first integrated church in Chicago in the 40s, in the 60s, when they, when the university wouldn't allow a safe space for gay couples, the church opened up its cafe, where we actually are now, so gay couples could, like, be open with one another and trans youth, things like that. In the 90s, it was a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants during the Bush era, and it's becoming one again during the Trump era, you know, so they really have this long history Do of doing... Do we have to call it an era? <laughs> well, <laughs> it will be. So, I mean... Well, okay. sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, and sort of inside of this whole church then, this nonprofit started called Stories Connect uh, about six years ago, and they do all kinds of, like, writing, and they have a podcast about finding the marginalized person inside of everyone is their sort of idea. And under that nonprofit is where we came about. Uh, Martin McKinney, who's the director of the nonprofit, had this idea for the cafe space about a year ago. And then sort of through the whole process, I got picked up about two months ago by him, a, f- a friend of his knows me, did like a photo shoot, and that's how I got in contact with him, and then they hired me two months ago, and we've been running a with it ever since. photo shoot for well, a it's cafe like, interview? Well, it's like, so like, like my, yeah. entire, my entire life, yeah. <laughs> well, my entire life has been like... In a church. Yeah, so. getting like work through Craigslist and like online postings, and so in sort of my like research, you know, one day... Very was, unrelatable experience. <laughs> right. Well, he this this guy, this photographer, posted saying like free headshots for bakers and stuff so he could fill his portfolio, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. Free headshots for bakers. Yeah, well, because he, he does like lifestyle shoots, things like that, you know, and he had done lots of other things and wanted to kind of like up his because he does like web design things like that, and so that's how I got in touch with him, and then his good friend is Martin. That's how I got he got in touch with me, and so it's all sort of from there. I mean, my entire life has been Chrysler ads, you know, all the jobs I've done has just been found online, sort of in my free time, you know. Right now we're still like in the development kind of planning phases. I brought in a lot of people from the community, like uh, one of my counter people is Ryan Greenlee. He runs a No Nation Gallery up in Wicker Park. Uh, another 
person that's working for me is uh, Lori May, and she uh, ran the Sunset series in Pilsen. It's like a pop-up of sort of like art on the periphery, so like hair, nails, craft, fashion, things like that, you know? And I'm trying to like populate the staff with these people in these backgrounds so that we can really sort of like, you know, involve all this work in the space and have it be really activated by all these different parts of the community. And then on top of that, the church itself hosts over 300 different organizations from Black Lives Matters to the Interna- International Socialist Organization and like Boy Scout troops and stuff. There's like theater groups <laughs> that go through there, you know. And they and, all need cupcakes. Exactly. They also. love them. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting because you do have all, you have, so I went to the space and there's an exhibition up that was mm-hmm. curated by two artists. I remember one is yeah. Liz Mexico and I can't remember. Um, Liz Wrighthouse. And it was sort of, it was over like a dozen artists, mostly from Chicago. We had someone from Detroit, someone from uh, Minneapolis as well. Sort of stuff from my collection and then sort of friends, you know, because mm-hmm. I've traded for stuff over the years. So I brought in a bunch of that and then, you know, friends of friends kind of thing. Your offerings are like way more yeah. boutique and guess, like yeah. experimental and interesting. For and sure. so I'm wondering like where the inspiration for you is coming as like a uh, as an artist, chef, mm-hmm. baker, mm-hmm. social justice proponent, yeah, all the exactly. church embedded atheist <laughs> human. It's true, yeah, it's true. Well, I, when I and I told them in the first interview, I was like, oh, you know, I'm an atheist, and they're like, oh, we don't care, you're doing God's work, you know. And I was like, okay, cool, like I can dig this, you know. Um, yeah, a lot of my, you know, I grew up in. I was fortunate enough to have a mother who was a stay at home mom, and so she always made everything for us, and she. You know, never would she would probably faint if there was like a like a boxed food in her kitchen sort of thing. You know, the most That's she nice. went out of the way is like getting just like bread pre-made sort of thing, you know. And I grew up in it. I grew up in West Lafayette, more or less like a college town. Me too. You know, really? What? Yeah. Oh, holy crap. Uh, West Lafayette. Oh, boy. Parents parents met at Purdue. Oh, nice. Yeah. My um, yeah. My like grandpa and great grandpa both taught oh, there. My brother and love. yeah, my whole family. Four <laughs> generations went there. Wow. Maybe, yeah. our, maybe our families know each other. I'm sure they do, actually. Yeah. yeah it's a really small town. Um, Ryan's going to call his mom later and be like, I met this exactly. guy. Exactly. <laughs> I know, right, exactly. Like, oh, they live over <laughs> off of yeah, Salisbury. And, yeah. Um, so it's like a really, you know, even though it's Indiana, it's a really multi-ethnic, diverse little community. And so I grew up with like lots of like Japanese, Filipino, Brazilian, Pakistani, Indian, you know, friends and families. And so was exposed to a lot of these foods. And then my father is from Mexico. My mother's from Indiana. They met in the military. It's sort of how they sort of met up. And so I always had this like really broad upbringing with food Uh, and I went to art school and I've always been a home cook. And so I never really, as I've been asked a couple times before, it's like, well, why don't, why aren't you a chef sort of thing? And it's like, I love cooking too much. I don't want to like, you know, just do it as a job and then never look back. So over the years I've developed like my own style, which is just like pulling spices and ingredients from all over, you know, and it's sort of like showing now in the, in the palette of the space. And this is actually kind of me playing it safe. Well, and it, so it influenced my art practice a whole lot, sort of after the catering company, and now I, I do sculptures made of food, which involves cake, you know? A lot of my practice has been about sort of Americana and culture and like what that means, you know, because I grew up brown and queer in Indiana, so like I was really hit, bombarded by a lot of different stuff, you know what I mean? It's true though. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. like, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of, I jokingly say I'm like a militant Midwesterner, because I like, I'm really proud of, because I also lived in Kentucky for a while, you know, and I'm really proud of the Midwest and the heartland and what we can offer, you know, and there's a lot of, crap obviously but there are lots of really good stuff too and exciting things you know well and lots of lots certainly lots of flour yeah exactly but and food, it's, yeah. it's funny because thinking about i mean i was just laughing because of the piece that you have in the show oh the subway sandwich cafe which is yeah. a porcelain subway sandwich yeah. a porcelain yes. tuna melt yeah it is like oh. so ornate and like yeah. I mean, it looks. It's like yeah, everyone's it's like, like the why adver- is there a sandwich on the well, wall? Well, yeah, it's like yeah. the advertising, like uh, ideal of a subway sandwich, rather than like the reality, yeah. like the sad in between yeah. class it's reality. The, the food, the food doctor, the food uh, decor version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's specifically branded Subway as opposed to just a generic submarine. Subway. Okay. Yeah, it's Subway for sure. I did it's... a whole series of their uh, six dollar footlongs, essentially. My... In porcelain. Well, the, for, the first, the first show, one was in Cape, so, Yeah, right? it was. I had a solo show at Stadium Two, which is a, a space in uh, New York. A friend of mine, Lauren Christensen, mm-hmm. uh, was her space out of Augusta and Fiore in Lower East Side. And I did the solo show of like eight different Subway footlongs that were all vanilla and chocolate cake, and they were all made out of like mass market cake and buttercream, which means it's shelf stable, so it could sit in the gallery space for a month and not rot or fall apart. So wait, just to be clear, the cakes that you have at the Sanctuary Cafe, not like that. Not like that at all. Yeah, They're yeah, all from those, scratch, yeah. Those sound about as gross as Subway sandwiches. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and you that, mean that, the that's Subway kind of the sandwich idea, version yeah. of cake? 
Yeah. Well, and then yeah, some, <laughs> some collectors uh, had interest, and so then I went ahead and made some porcelain versions because um, I, you know. Because uh, obviously yeah. the what? next step from <laughs> box cake is porcelain. porcelain. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I in the high school, you get into, like, ceramics, and so I've been doing that for, like, you know, oh, ceramics 15 is the years. Most yeah. Fun yeah. medium it's as so far relaxing. as I'm concerned. Yeah. In response to what Ryan was saying about professionalization, which is how much cred did you get from being – on the Food Network. A fair amount. I mean, you know, honestly, like, it's not hard to get on the Food Network, dare I say. I Don't know. say that. <laughs> Don't say that. So let's tell people on the radio so they can start Googling. Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah, I was on the Christmas Cookie Challenge 2 is the official uh, show. It's like a one episode sort of special during the holiday season. I, like, was once again online. So you call. keep getting pushed into these religious situations. <laughs> yeah. The Klonsky brothers spoke with Camille Williams, the field and volunteer coordinator for Chicago Votes, and Matt Blieschek, the elections mobilizations director for MoveOn.org, about the upcoming elections and how to get millennials out to the polls. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, uh, again, uh, we've got uh, Camille Williams from Chicago Votes, uh, Matt Blieschek, did I get it right? You got it. Uh, uh, from uh, MoveOn.org. Uh, Matt, uh, tell us a little bit about your work at MoveOn. Sure. So uh, so my role at MoveOn, so MoveOn.org, uh, uh, for those uh, listening aren't familiar, we're uh, an online activist organization, uh, been around since the late 90s, um, since there really was online activism. Um, and uh, we work on progressive issues and support progressive candidates um, really all across the country. Um, and I'm based here in Chicago, um, but really work, uh, my specific role at MoveOn is to help identify progressive candidates and to mobilize our members um, all across the country in support of those candidates to get them elected to office. Uh, you're, you're you're organizing something called April Resistance Recess. What is that about? Yeah. So uh, as we've seen, really since you know Donald Trump uh, his inauguration, um, we've seen this tremendous outpouring of activism. Um, unlike really, I think what we've seen in in a long time. Um, and we've been, you know, the first uh, recess that happened um, was in February of this year when, you know, Congress goes on recess, they tend to go home to their districts. Um, a lot of them, uh, although few and fewer, are trying to do town halls. Um, and with those that have been brave enough to do town halls, uh, they've been met by, you know, really organized, really loud, really raucous crowds um, that are really, you know, the last um, you know, recess was really, I think, pivotal uh, to stopping this uh, overturn of the Affordable Care Act. And I think that a lot of those town halls that you know, Move On and other groups helped organize uh, really played a big impact in that. Um, and we're planning to, to really do the same thing. Um, they're going to be going on recess uh, here in a week. There's lots of you know, important issues that are still going to be coming up in the weeks ahead. They're going to try to push back on health care. We've got potentially um, you know, the situation in uh, you know, foreign policy in Syria developing and lots of other issues. So we're going to be out there at those town halls and in the streets again uh, making sure that you know, Congress uh, sees this. And not just Republicans, but Democrats too. Because I think that you know, we, know, we need to make sure the Republicans know that they're going to pay a political price if they follow Donald Trump and follow Paul Ryan you know, on these policies that are widely unpopular. But we also need to stiffen the spines of Democrats. And we need to let Democrats know that, hey, if you are in D.C. resisting as well, like people are going to have your back. Um, and I think particularly, you know, we saw Democrats stand tall on the, uh, you know, on the Gorsuch uh, nomination, even though Republicans, um, you know, went nuclear and overrode it. Um, I think it was still encouraging to see at least most Democrats um, stand tall and, and not get rolled um, like we've seen, I think, Democrats do a lot of times in the past. Uh, Camille, Camille Williams. Uh, what up? Tell us about Chicago votes. Uh, I, I was going to say something about it, but I'm going to let you do it because it's one of my favorite uh, favorite organizations. Mine too. <laughs> so Chicago votes. Find us. We here. We're mobilizing Chicago. Um, we're a not-for-profit organization um, that focuses on voter registration, voter education, and activation. Um, we get a lot of Chicago millennials involved in the civic process. What does this look like registering people to vote? We have to vote. Um, we have a lot of programs and internships and fellowships. Um, my favorite one is the parades to the polls. We take high school students, first-time voters, to go vote, and it's awesome. Like, and you, and you got some. You had some uh, victories in uh, in terms of getting some bills passed uh, recently, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so we just reintroduced automatic voter registration. Um, 
for people who don't know what automatic voter registration is, um, it gives, um, when you go to any social service, um, like the DMV or DHS office, you're automatically registered to vote. You have the option of opting out. So hopefully Ronner doesn't veto it. What happened last time? Didn't we pass that already? Yeah, we passed it, but <laughs> Ronner vetoed it. What, like, what does he pass? That's though? our illustrious governor. Like, what does he pass? <laughs> yeah. What does he pass? <laughs> what does he do? Well, what then, does he do? Well, then what's, what's, what's the point, uh, Camille? What's, is it worth fighting for something uh, that when you win, you still lose? Um, I think how, do you keep, how do you keep all these millennials encouraged and, uh, and uh, active when, um, in these hard times? We identify their needs, um, engage with them on a community gra- grassroots level, find out what is it that they care about, and help them um, be able to be vocal in the civic process and within, even within their own community, like helping them identify what neighborhood do they live in, what ward, who's your alderman, how do we hold them accountable, and then, you know, you take it on a higher level. Because like, I saw, I, saw um, a re- I think last week there was a, re- uh, a news story about the new registrations in Illinois and how there were record record numbers of new registrations, partly because of your efforts at, at you getting. You know, I was your, out here. <laughs> it was your idea. You, people to vote. you did it. But here's what didn't happen: is that people didn't vote. So you, yeah. we had record numbers of registrations, and the millennials were the lowest turnout. What's wrong with you, young people? What's, right? wrong, with, what's wrong with kids today? Because <laughs> um, I'll tell you, you know who was the largest turnout. Old folks like yeah. me. The old folks <laughs> oh, are always out. <laughs> yeah. Old folks are always out. I think um, what I've noticed, like with me engaging with um, like community stakeholders, is that um, they don't really understand how stuff affects them. The first thing they always say, like, it's not. A, I'm not affected by it, but it's like, really, you are. Yeah, I, I think the question is, is a little backwards, too. I think what's, what's wrong with candidates that they can't motivate young people uh, to actually want to get involved? That's right? true. You know, I think that that's the, the real question. I think that's the, what we need to look for. If we want to get young people out you know, and, and voting and inspired, we need to have candidates that do that. That's Matt Blazek from uh, MoveOn.org. Uh, Matt, uh, what does this mean in terms of the upcoming uh, gubernatorial race? Uh, uh, is MoveOn... Uh, have you got a favorite in the race? And, uh, and uh, what's the strategy for uh, getting rid of this uh, governor we had, this reactionary governor? Yeah, we, uh, so we, we have not endorsed in this race. Uh, we're, we're tracking this primary here in Illinois, just like we are a lot of the other emerging uh, Democratic primaries. Um, governor's races are going to be critically important all across the country in 2018. Uh, there are like 15 or 16 Republican-held governor seats that we could potentially win or pick up, uh, including obviously here in Illinois. Um, so it's definitely a race that, that we're keeping an eye on. Um, you know, the, the candidates, the candidate field is still kind of emerging. Um, I think uh, what Pritzker act formally announced That's yesterday, J. I saw. J.B. Pritzker. Yeah. So uh, one, more, one more billionaire in the one race. One more billionaire. Uh, <laughs> you can never have too many billionaires running in Illinois. Apparently not. Um, I, think, I think that though the, the thing that, that is key, um, you know, you, you asked the question, like, what do we need to do to make sure we defeat uh, Bruce Rauner? I think there are a couple things that really get back to the, the point Camille made about what's going to motivate people to go out and vote. Um, and I think there are three things that, that really come to mind. I think the first is I think most people in Illinois, we want a governor who's going to stand up to Trump and is going to stand up to the president and protect uh, those in the state. Um, you know, from the, the president's deportation policies, from all the other things he's going to be doing uh, that are really going to impact communities across Chicago and across Illinois. I think people are going to look for that in a governor. And I think the candidate that is really able to articulate that uh, the most clearly is going to get a lot of support. I think the second thing is, uh, you know, we, we need to have like real, um, like a real economic vision for this state um, from the left, right? Where it's, it's, where it's you know, our, our conversations are just constantly dominated by how can we fix the budget or what can we cut or what, you know, instead we should be talking about how do we lift people out of poverty? How do we give people opportunity? How do we make college free? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and how do we, you know, fix the, the, the tax brackets so we can actually have an equitable uh, economy in the state? Um, I think people are really hungry for, for that yeah, message. Yeah, but you know, Matt, uh, here's the thing. Uh, uh, I think right now, uh, I get all this email and, and contact on my blog and here. Uh, people picking sides already, picking candidates in the gubernatorial race. And I tell them, I haven't heard a thing that separates any of these guys, and they're all guys, a- any of these guys uh, from any of the other guys, whether they're billionaires or whether it's Dan Biss or the Alderman uh, Poir or any, 
I, you know, we you say all the good things, and I, that's but but they would all probably agree with everything uh, you said. And so I wonder if I'm if I was a young young millennial uh, from the West Side, and I'm trying to find I want to get energized to vote. Who who's exciting me out there? Who's saying something that everybody else isn't saying? It's like when in in in, in my ward, you know, every time a, uh, there's a new alderman run, and they mm-hmm. they come visit, and they and I say. Uh, well, what what's new about you? And they just say, well, we're going to set up a zoning committee. I mean, it's the same old, old, same old. And so I agree with what you say, but what what's going to get people activated around any of these guys when they all sound exactly the same? The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.